0: Parker,
1: and I'm Ashley Hamilton, and And this is Celebrity
0: Memoir Book Club,
1: the podcast where they say nothing compares to the book, but actually one thing does, and that's this podcast. We are bringing it to you as best as we can with a tiny little dose of our opinions, and if you don't want that, baby, you'll have to listen to the original recording, which is actually by Prince.
0: Did you know that before this book?
1: No. Me neither.
0: And you guys, we are doing a very special Irish memoir this week. For our upcoming trip to Dublin, we landed this morning. If you're listening fresh off the presses, we have just arrived on your soil turf. Yeah. Either or. Turf soil. And we are so excited to do our shows Thursday and Friday this week. And if you live in London, Friday is sold out, but there are still tickets for Monday. We're so excited to meet you guys. I cannot wait. We are
1: about to have the most incredible time traversing the countryside, actually mostly spending time
0: in the city. I cannot wait to hear what all the Irish warmings think of Sinead O'Connor, one of their own Irish people. Probably not a worm. Up for debate. Sinead, if you're listening, let us know or just come to the show.
1: Yeah, Sinead, if you hear this, there's still time and we'll give you a comp.
0: <laughs> anyway, Claire, if you were to write a memoir about your life, what would you title last week's chapter? I can't even talk about it. It was just so boring. All I'm doing is packing and moving and I'm living in a hell of boxes because the thing about moving is, first of all, our move date got pushed a week. So we like pack for an entire weekend only to find out we had to pack the next weekend too and just live amongst our things. I think the tricky part about packing is you think that the more you do, the cleaner the apartment will get. But it's actually the opposite because the more you do, the more you're taking stuff out from its rightful place and putting it into the middle of where you live.
1: Well, that's how I feel about all cleaning and why it's so much more complicated than just cleaning is because with every matter of cleaning, it's always worse before it gets better, no matter what.
0: But I feel like this is going to get worse until we leave. Like there is no, at some point it'll get better. At some point we'll just like walk out the door. Well, it'll get
1: better when you're moved into a new
0: apartment and then you can unpack. (laughs) So I've just been living amongst my things. It's very difficult because things you don't think you'll need, you actually need the minute you pack them away. Yeah, that's (laughs) Did you know I was going to need a microwave or pots and pans? Yes. And I didn't know. That was the first thing I packed. I threw <laughs> out the microwave. I put the microwave on the street and I was like, well, I won't need this ever again. Now for two weeks, I've been making oatmeal and then looking at the oatmeal and being like, well, this is garbage. <laughs> that is stupid. I have to tell you. So that's my life. I'm the first person I think on the planet who's ever moved. Yeah, that's So nobody true. could have warned me. Nobody could have helped me and nobody could possibly relate to me. Totally. But I'm excited to fucking leave Mac with all this shit because we're about to go on tour. (laughs) And I'm like, you move, baby. I'll meet you in the new spot. Wow, that is honestly really convenient. Ashley. Yes, Claire. If you were a celebrity and last week was a memoir, what would you title last week's memoir?
1: I would title it Shame, Regrets, and Lies. I have to come to you guys with a shameful secret that I regret. It's a lie that I've told I said I would never go back to dating apps, and I did redownload Hinge. And here's the thing. I have been saying for the last year that I was just going to go meet people in real life. And I have, to be fair, but not successfully. Like, I've been going out and putting myself out there in the world a little bit more, and I still fully think that dating apps are not a good way to meet people, but I do think that they are helpful in certain instances. And I think that I have forgotten how to date almost entirely. And I am going to be out of town so much that I was like, listen, if I want to meet someone to date and then go on a date with them before Mid to late June, I have to get back on dating apps. And so here I am chatting away. I haven't been using them that heavily, which is kind of what I hoped for. I need them to like not take up space in my brain and just kind of like be there when I am not really doing anything else, like watching TV or just chilling, you know? And so if I start to spiral, then we'll delete, I promise. But right now, oh, we're there and it's fine. It's not better, not worse, just
0: as it was before. (laughs) (sighs) Should we get into this week's? Memoirist. This week's Memoirist is none other than Sinead O'Connor and her Rememberings. This book is called Rememberings. So this book is really just like a stream of consciousness. The things she remembers. I really liked it. Oh, me too. I found it to be like deeply tender because she has gone through some fucked up shit, but she really makes such an effort to look back at the moments that were beautiful and the times that people protected her and the people who were good to her even though she had a traumatic childhood and upbringing and she is definitely an absolute crazy person, you leave the book almost feeling hopeful. Like there's these pockets of hope of people that did help her and try to protect her.
1: I found it so hopeful. I found her to be so open and lovely. You really watch things keep happening and people keep taking advantage of her and things keep going wrong. And you're like, well, it's just because she's so open. And because she is such a like receiving soul,
0: It was interesting reading this after reading Paris's memoir because I think Paris's memoir afterwards we did some research and I was like Paris really blew past a lot of the things that she should have held herself accountable for or apologized for. And I think Sinead is the kind of person who I'm sure a million people have their side of the story from Sinead and I'm sure to know her in real life is very, very difficult. But I feel like there is something beautiful in a memoir where if somebody is willing to be open and vulnerable and honest, that you can love them for their good. I read this book and I was just like, my heart broke for Sinead O'Connor. And I was just like, she's just an artist. She's just like a fucked up tormented artist who wants to help the world and stands by her convictions and is like a good person with strong beliefs. But I'm sure to have been her child was hell. I'm sure to have been her family was hell. Like I'm sure to know her in real life is hell, but like it's kind of beautiful that there is this place where like the best parts of her, the parts that deserve grace and love and empathy can live and be loved because it's no skin off my back. She's never gonna stand me up on a date. You know what I mean? Like I don't care if she's flaky.
1: I got to about that exact point. But in the middle, I definitely stopped over to a place of like, of course they call her crazy. The establishment wants anyone who lives outside of their norms to be viewed as mentally ill. And then at the end I was like, no, I mean, she is mentally ill, but she makes a lot of
0: really good points. <laughs> I mean, you know, we all start out with a certain disposition, a certain like level of mental illness in us. I think you're predisposed genetically and then life's events either make them worse or better or manageable. And definitely Sinead was born predisposed and her life events made them worse. Yeah. (laughs) They pushed her to the brink. But you know what? She deserves to be loved and valued
1: for the good. And let's hear about what she has to say. She starts with a bit of a disclaimer. I can't remember any more than I've given my publisher, except for that which is private or that I wish to forget. The totality indeed of what I do not recall would fill 10,000 libraries, so it's probably just as well that I don't remember. Chiefly, I don't remember because I wasn't really present until about six months ago. And as I write this, I'm 54 years of age. There are many reasons I wasn't present. You can glean them here or most of them.
0: Then she talks about who she wrote about and who she left out and that her music is really herself. And she's like, Now, I ain't going to be winning the Booker Prize anytime soon, and I ain't Bob Dylan or Shakespeare or even in the class of my amazing brother Joseph as a writer. But I've told my story as I remember it and tried to tell it the way I speak. I imagined a certain person I was talking to as I was writing or talking the chapters. Never going to tell you who that was, though.
1: She really writes this book in the way that people speak. A lot of words are spelled in the accent they're pronounced. Like At one point, she's talking about being an idiot, and she writes it like E-E-J-I-T, like an idiot like an Irish person. And it took me a minute to be like, what the fuck is an Egypt?" And I was like, oh, an idiot.
0: Offstage, I never really made sense to anyone, even myself, unless I was singing. But I hope this book makes sense. If not, maybe try singing it and see if that helps. Like I said, it does help. You have to say parts of it out loud to understand the words. <laughs> <laughs> so then she does something in the prologue. That was the foreword. She is one of our many memoirs who has 17 chapters before the first chapter. In the prologue, she does something that I've never seen someone do before, but I greatly appreciate it. And I think I made this book the readable book that it is. Before we begin, for the purposes of clarity, here is the architecture of my family and when I was with whom. And then she essentially lays out her life until she turns 18. in a very straightforward This is what happened and then this is what happened. Like literally just one page,
1: here are the years, here are the places, let's move on.
0: It gives you a scaffolding for which the quite poetic stream of consciousness, what happened. Consciousnessy. Is that a word? Of course not. (laughs) (laughs) Book can IV wrap itself around. So basically, should I give them the rundown so that they can follow along too? Yes. My mother Marie and father John married in 1960 and set up home in Crumlin, Dublin, where they had been raised. Three years later, my brother Joe was born and they moved to a middle class Glenagoree. Sorry if I pronounce all these Irish words wrong, you guys. You already know that there's no fucking shot in hell I get these words right. We'll see you in two days and come with a list and oh. a list of corrections. I actually beg you not to. <laughs> in 1965, my sister, Emir came. Then me 14 months later in 1966. Then in 1968, my brother. In 1975, my father sensibly left my mother for reasons this book will help you glean. He was given custody of us, and we went to live with him and his new love, my lovely stepmother Viola. But me and my little brother stayed only maybe six months because we missed our mother. At that point, I was nine. I stayed with my mother until I was 13, and then I went by choice back to live with my father. I was unable to adjust after what had been going on in my mother's house, so towards the end of my 13th year, I went to what is politely called a rehabilitation center for girls with behavioral problems. At 15, I left the center and went to a boarding school in Waterford. I joined a band that summer, and when I went back to school, I missed the band. So in December, after I turned 16, I ran away from the school and got myself a studio apartment, a bedsit, much to the horror of my poor father. He eventually agreed to let me stay once I agreed to remove the nose piercing I had gotten. He paid my rent, but none of my bills, so I had to get jobs. He's a genius. My father's second wife, Viola, has three daughters from a different marriage, so I have three stepsisters. Viola and my father also have Yoin. Maybe Ian? maybe so he's my brother also in 1985 my mother died in a car crash I was 18 later that year after being invited by Ensign Records to sign a contract with them I left for London my first child was born when I was 23 weeks before my first album was released I have three other children and so far two grandchildren so that's her life that's most of this book but now we get into the fun parts which are the memories the rememberings one might say So from the time she was young, she has always heard voices. And she says things like the piano in her grandparents' house would speak to her and say things like, play me very softly, gently, gently, only barely, because I'm a very tender thing and ghosts are very sore. People don't talk, so their feelings fly into musical things. The ghosts are things people don't want to remember. And to her, her whole life since childhood, music has been the ghosts of memories that people wish to repress.
1: So she takes a lot of time in this book to call out the people who've made her feel good and happy and loved in her life, whether she met them for an afternoon or whether they were a part of her family. So she dedicates a chapter to her grandfathers. Just everyone she's ever met that has a joyful laugh is someone that is so important to her. Like even if she didn't even directly communicate with them, but she just knows that they had one of those like happy laughing, like they're crying
0: smiles. She just like loves them. She loves crying laughing. She says that's the best thing you can do in the world. I have to agree. One of her grandfathers called her Scamp. When I asked him, my granddad said Scamp is my nickname because the Scamp is a rascal, a bold thing, and I'm the boldest of all my mother's children. But he threw his head back and cackled smokily after he said it. Looked like a big child himself. His eyes got so happy. He likes me for being bold. Maybe he was the boldest of his mother's children. And everywhere she goes her whole life, she hears music. She remembers August 1977 crying. I'm crying so fucking much I can't make my bed. And why? Because Elvis is dead.
1: I need a new father now that Elvis is gone. My father isn't dead. I just ain't seen him for a very long time because my mother doesn't like him. Fact, they pretty much can't stand each other. It's scary when they're together, but it's not as much scary on our own with our dad because she's different. I don't go looking for any father because I have God. And this is where she sort of first mentions the way she's always kind of seeking father figures. She has a father, but whenever she hears music that really resonates with her, she says, that's my dad. Or when she meets someone that she's really inspired by. She's like, that's my father in this moment.
0: And she talks about the first time she heard Bob Dylan. I like this Dylan man singing. In my head, I call him Lebanon man. And she says that since discovering him, I've stopped knocking on doors around Glenn asking people if I can be their child. Been doing that on and off since I was about six. They always only bring me home anyway, imagining my mother to be like other people's mothers. Dylan would never be deceived. Though some of them did give me cheese balls and such. When they brought me home, my mother acted all nice at the door. Bob is a way better dad than Elvis anyway. That's what I thought all the time when her knee went into my stomach and up against the wall. And she was always trying to change her mother. She remembers going to Lourdes because she had heard miracles get worked there. And so she made her mom take her there. And she went and found a priest and asked the priest to help do like an exorcism almost to change her mom and make her not so sick in the head. The priest says, there's nothing I can do for her. He tells me to pray until I'm 18 and can leave home unless I'm able to leave any sooner. I'm thinking, oh, great, a hopeless priest. How the fuck did he get stationed here? <laughs> she does, however, on this trip, fall in love for the first time. She falls in love with her tour guide,
1: Jay, and she goes to tell him that she loves him. But then he sits her down and is like, I'm an adult man and you're a child. You know, it's very brave of you to like feel your love so strongly and to tell me about it. But you can't go telling adult men that you love them because a lot of them are not nice.
0: He also said he was the kind of man who loved other men. I never heard of such a thing before, so we had to explain a little he asked, what I mind keeping what he told me to myself because he said some people don't really agree with men loving men. He said people don't often recognize what God loved. And he said that they sometimes didn't love what God loved. He also has this beautiful moment where he says, well, what do you love about me? And she says that he's gentle. So he said, I'm to always make sure anyone I love is gentle. Then he said, I could come and see him anytime I liked for milk and biscuits and he was going to be my friend. And like, I think the little stories like that, which oh God, after reading all these memoirs, The sigh of relief every time an adult man doesn't take advantage of a child. I'm like, whoa, that was close. (laughs) Literally. There's all these tender moments in this book of people looking out for her and trying to help her and being kind and loving her. And just like the way she writes
1: it is so open and hopeful and childlike. So she goes back to her time in school in Dublin. At one point, she gets hit in the head by a train handle. She's standing on the train platform And like she's standing a little bit too close. And as the train whirs by, it smacks her in the head. Her head is gushing blood. She gets stitches and she has a concussion. She has to stay home for a few months from school. And her mom is so sweet to her during that time that by the time she is healthy enough to go back to school, she starts faking these fainting spells because she wants to go home and have her mom love her again.
0: They're so worried about me after what happened that I got away with a mere Golden Globes worthy performances. They didn't have to be Oscar winning. Usually I'm the bad girl because I'm always stealing people's lunches.
1: And so she gets into what her mom's behaviors were like when she wasn't sick and when she wasn't being taken care of because she had stitches and a concussion. Her mom would make her take all of her clothes off and lie on the floor and she would beat her with a broom. Her mom would lock her in her room and leave
0: for the weekend. That's because I'm the kid crying in fear on the last day of the term before summer holidays. I have to pretend I lost my field hockey stick because I know my mother would hit me with it all summer long if I bring it home. Anytime she gets mad at her, she just locks her in the bedroom and leaves for days on end. The time when she finally goes and moves in with her father when she's nine is because they cry when he drives away. The mother got so sick of the daughter crying that she locked her out of the house and went to bed with Sinead being nine years old. So Sinead walked and found a police officer because she couldn't get into the house. Then she went to live with her father for a few months. She has this memory of, I asked my mother's doctor to put her away in the hospital because of what happened after my brother Joe ran away. So her older brother, Joe, runs away. She told him if he didn't come home, she would put me in the passenger seat of the car and drive into oncoming traffic in order to hurt me and force him to come back. He didn't believe her, and he got out of the car and walked away. Then she did it, put me in the passenger seat and deliberately smashed into a car that was coming the other way. Luckily, we were both okay, but I did scream at her. When we got home, I called her doctor, and he came and said that for our sakes, he would put her in the hospital.
1: She also talks about dancing during this time. It's her one escape. And there's a lot of music in her life. Her mom has a record collection. She talks about the record collections in her life that were important to her. And she loves taking dance classes. But her teacher says she'll never be a great ballerina because her entire body is crooked. I think she just
0: has scoliosis. She has scoliosis and then a full-on train. Hit her in the head. Yeah. (laughs) So that fucked her up pretty bad, too. (laughs) Yeah. And then her mom's crashing
1: her car on purpose. Yeah.
0: So she's had a lot of injuries. And then on top of that, her mom's constantly beating her.
1: But when she dances, she feels free. When she's a little bit older, she gets a job. She lies about her age and she works at a club. And when she gets there and the patrons aren't there yet, the DJ will just like let her dance and won't watch her. And she's allowed to just be free and dance.
0: He has to practice his set, so while he's doing that at full volume, he puts on the disco lights for me in the smoke machine and I change into my ballet shoes and my shiny blue stretchy disco pants that my mother would kill me for wearing because they're so tight. I sold them too. I have the floor to myself for a good hour and a half with only me and the DJ there, and I make him promise not to look. He's nice to me. He doesn't look. I know because I keep my eye on him. He ducks down behind his mixing desk and gets busy with his lists. These little moments keep it from being just like unbearably sad. <laughs>
1: So, oh my God, there are Mormon missionaries in their town in
0: Ireland. Oh, she missed Heather Gay by just a few years. She talks about how everybody had a crush on them because they're all American and like they would just let them gab on and on about God being like, totally, should we fuck now?
1: <laughs> she and her sister went back to their apartment one time because they just thought they were so handsome and the boys just sat there and were like, here's why you should become
0: a Mormon too. And
1: they were like, Maybe. <laughs> She also loves to hear people talk about their religion at her.
0: She is very religious all through this. And as with the ghost thing, God comes to her constantly. And she's always seeing spirits and visions and guardian angels.
1: So she ends up meeting another American man who works at a restaurant near their house. And she lies to him and says that she is 18 when she's 14. And they sleep together. And then she tells him, She just wanted to lose her virginity and he is like, you can never lie by your age again. I should not have had sex with him. Okay, so this is the thing that I wanted to say about this. I think it's nice that the man freaked out and was like, what the fuck? But I also will say that a man who is getting ready to have sex with someone, like what context clues were you looking for? This was just a girl willing to have sex with you so you didn't think about fucking anything. I mean, she was a virgin. She was a child. Are you telling me there were no context clues?
0: He was like 18, 19. You know what I mean? I know, I know.
1: I'm not mad at him specifically. I don't think he did anything wrong, but this is just my frustration with the males in general. You know, she lied to him, so how could he have known? But also I'm like,
0: yeah, she says she was all dressed up to, like, look older. I don't know. Yeah. He was American. He didn't know what the cultural difference was. I feel like what it was supposed to be like, men, in addition to believing women, you should also always expect them to be lying to you and check ID. <laughs> Ask for paperwork every time you meet a girl to verify her identification. Like, obviously not. And I think she says that, like, they don't really have sex. As soon as he sees blood, he's like, wait, are you a virgin? When things seem less easy than they're supposed to be, she says, he figures it out. And he's like, wait. It's not like he was like, oh, I love how inexperienced you are and how willing you are to lie for me now become my wife. He immediately right. was, as soon as things got fishy, he was like, wait, what? She was and like, What? get the fuck out. <laughs> my mother herself is addicted to stealing, has been for as long as I can remember. When the collection's plate is passed around at mass, she takes money out of it rather than putting money in. This is so weird. When the new traffic circle was made at Avondale Road, she drove down in the night with trowels and black rubbish bags to steal the just planted baby bushes. When they planted new bushes down, she went again and took those. I don't know what she did with them. She took the crucifixes off the hospital walls. Like, she just is a thief, and she starts getting Sinead to steal, too. Sinead gets caught stealing constantly. And I have to say, like, even the nuns in her life are all like, does your mom tell you to do this? And she always defends her mom and says no. And you can tell that everybody feels sad. And when she shows up with bruises, they're always like, is this from your mom? And she always defends her mom and nobody really knows how to help her
1: yeah so then they develop this scam where she has to collect money in a tin for school and whoever collects the most money wins a prize and she really wants the prize but then her mom sees how full this tin is that she's collected and is like we've got to get more of these charity tins and then we'll just say we're collecting money for a charity and we'll keep the money so they develop this whole scheme
0: until one day they're making thousands of dollars pounds pounds thousands of pounds They get caught. Mom's sitting there now giving an almost but not quite Oscar worthy performance for Sergeant, making out like she doesn't know anything about the tins and she's outraged. That's why I want to puke, but the Sergeant won't let me leave. He wants me to watch her sell me down the river. She doesn't know he's promised he won't lock me up because I've told him the truth. She doesn't care if I get locked up. The Sergeant looks like he wants to punch her. I don't think I love her anymore. So I guess one day she gets caught and she explains that her and her mom have been doing this together. And then the mom is sitting there being like, My awful daughter, I can't in a million years believe that she would do this. It's a real breaking point that her mom cares less about her.
1: Yeah. And so she one day is talking to a priest and admitting to how much she steals. And he asks her, what job do I think I'd like when I'm an adult? And I told him I like singing. He said, ah, did you know that he who sings prays twice? And I said, I didn't know. There are people who really listen to her and help her. He made me promise that when I get a job, I'll give back all the money I took. He said, then I would be square with God. He said, I could go busking if I don't want to wait, but I don't know how to play guitar. I just carry my brother's guitar case around empty black rock so everyone will think I'm cool, but I'm going to keep my promise. And this chapter is called Why I Sing. So this is what kind of gave her the green light to
0: pursue music. She wanted to repent. She remembers the first time she went to her father's house and the way that her and her younger brother felt such loyalty to their mother that they felt really guilty and angry for being at their house and were just very difficult and would scream and fight and all they wanted to do was be returned to their mother's house. She does
1: love Viola though, her father's new wife.
0: The reason my siblings and I lived there with her then was that my mother lost custody of us because the day my father left her, she put us to stay in a hut she- he'd built us in the garden. Once he'd gone, we started crying. She said if we loved him so much, we could go live in the hut. I knelt on the ground in front of the gable wall and wailed up in the landing window to get her to let us into the house when it got dark. She never responded and off went the light in her bedroom and everything went black. That is when I officially lost my mind and also became afraid of the size of the sky. When I think about that moment, my mind goes blank and I can't remember what happened after. Nothing until I found myself walking around the judge's garden, holding his hand, not wanting to say painful things that could result in more pain. And then she talks about how fucked up her siblings' relationships are with their dad. I don't really know him, and he doesn't really know me. It's not his fault or mine. It's my mother's because she didn't let him see us for so long. But she didn't tell us she wouldn't let him. So I thought he just didn't come around. I was angry at him inside myself all the time. I guess after the car accident, she can't go back with her mom. She's fighting her dad at his house. So they send her to this place called Anne Green Anne, The Sunrise. She'd also gotten thrown out of her schools for the stealing and the cheating and the skipping class. Yeah, so she gets sent to
1: this school, which is the school for troubled girls.
0: This is a great place where loads of nuns live. And a lot of the old ladies are shuffling around in their slippers with their chins to their chest. We aren't allowed to talk to them. They live in a different part of the building.
1: She also falls in love with a priest here. I asked him to forget about becoming a priest and marry me instead, but he said no. At this rate, I'm never going to get married. I keep getting turned down.
0: There's just a lot of different girls there. She says there's two girls who are travelers. One of the girls is 22. I think there's a lot of people with emotional problems and probably mental illnesses and people who have been abandoned. And they just come here and essentially it's like they try to go to school in the morning and then at night they try to teach them life skills. So they learn how to be like typists. And as they get older, they do one day a week where they go out into the world and do temp jobs. And it very much is just like a holding place for girls to try to give them life skills.
1: Which I will say makes it sound not so bad until you get to the part about a girl who was pregnant and she had her baby at the school. And they just took it and she says they didn't give him to his father and she doesn't know who they gave him to. They just took him and he's gone. Poor little Moses.
0: Now she's gone too, even though her body is still here. She doesn't shape her nails. She doesn't do her makeup. She doesn't dress nice anymore. She never smiles or speaks. All she does is cry her poor heart out all day. I do think that that was standard in Ireland. I don't think that was just the school. I think like the entire country had like a real problem with taking babies from unwed mothers and just giving them away in closed adoptions. However, it's not all bad. It's not like the Paris at all. For example, she really loves music. And so one of the sisters actually buys her a guitar and gets her um, teacher to come in and teach her how to play the guitar. And after she learns like three chords, she starts breaking out at nights to busk in the city streets and make money and break back in. And every time she breaks out, she gets a little bit in trouble. She'll leave sometimes for an entire night or two.
1: Yeah. And so then she gets sent to stay in this hospital room one night with old ladies where essentially the punishment was letting her figure it out for myself. If I didn't stop running away, I would someday be one of these old ladies. So they were just old women who didn't have
0: families to care for them and were essentially in hospice. Just dying alone. She talks about how they would just like scream out for nurses and nobody ever came. She also says she would run away and stay with her mom a lot. Sister Margaret tried to break the hold my mother had on me. That was the toughest job for her because she couldn't get to me at all. I never say a word, just cry totally silent and red-faced, big buckets. I
1: don't give a shit about anyone but myself right now, and I'm not sniffly at all. I just want out of here. I'm allowed to leave because I agreed to go to boarding school. That's the deal. I'm going to my father's house for the summer and then to a boarding school in Waterford. After that, I can go to my father's house every second weekend and for the school holidays.
0: She says that the first school she went to was full of wild kids. There wasn't one square. I learned a lot about where I was living from them and what everyone thought of us residents.
1: She hates squares. That's very important.
0: She says the only thing that happened that was good there was she fell in love with a boy named David and he was a proper punk. I guess she was always a beautiful singer because she says before she left, I sang at my guitar teacher Jeanette's wedding. She also auditioned to be the lead singer of a band, but they said she was too young to actually be the singer. But they took the song that she wrote and gave it to the other woman. I was so jealous of the girl who got the job that at first I wanted to cry when I heard her singing my words. And she was so gorgeous and beautiful. And to be fair, she did sing it better. I sounded like a child. She sounded like a woman. A child can't be singing a song whose narrator is death.
1: Then she does a little tribute to her stepmother. I love my stepmother. She is the sweetest lady on earth. So when I say this, I mean it with kindness. The woman will never give you a lift anywhere. And that is important because one day her stepmother shows up to give her a ride home when she's with friends. As soon as she sees her stepmom driving up, she knows her mother is dead.
0: She was 18 years old and she says she had just been speaking to a friend the night before about what they would ever do if one of their parents died. Her mom had died in a car accident. Her brother was in the back seat. And another guy was in the car with them, and luckily they were unscathed, but her mother died on impact. My brother had gone unconscious and woken up in the hospital to be told his mother was dead.
1: By the time I got to my father's house, he was there lying in bed. None of us had seen him for ages. He never left my mother. The rest of us did.
0: Everything she'd had on this earth was left to my brother, so my father had no say in matters concerning her possessions. She's dead, but the war goes on. Clever bitch. She hadn't left my brothers her things because she cared about them. She'd done it to win the war. We were all only collateral to her. That's all we'd ever been. At least that's how it feels to me. The mom and the dad had been fighting literally until the day she died over some stuff that they both felt they owned. And she says she left it to the brothers who were loyal to her to make sure the father still never got them. We four kids went to her house in shock. We rifled through everything in it like crows. In the front garden, we set fire to a biscuit tin that we'd loaded up with a literal mountain of valium from all the bottles we found. She'd been eating and drinking it, as they say, for years. She didn't even need a prescription anymore. The chemist just gave it to her.
1: The next day, as we were waiting in my father's sitting room for the funeral cars, I decided to smoke myself to death. Decided that I would smoke and smoke all my life, as many cigarettes as it took to send me to my mother. I can't remember anything from the funeral, but feet around the grave. I looked down. We all
0: did, crying. In the church, I felt really angry with all the people who came to shake our hands. This was the morning before the day of the funeral. We were sitting in the front row. We'd never seen these people when she was alive. I was angry they hadn't helped us or her. I didn't know who half of them were, and the ones I know made me feel angrier. They'd known, not the details, but they'd known. They hadn't done a thing, but came now to shake our hands and tell us how sorry they were for our loss. I was tempted to ask, which loss in particular? We've more chance of actually raising our mother from the dead from some Easter Sunday than ever getting back what was really lost which is ourselves, years before now.
1: So her sister, Emer, is only a year older than her, but she says she had like a very motherly presence. And she says the difference is essentially that Sinead is mentally ill and Emer is not. Emer has self-esteem and red hair. I don't have either.
0: The way she talks about her, I found so beautiful. She makes me see affirmations. I am loving, I am lovable. I love and accept myself, et cetera, in the mirror. It doesn't work, but being around her makes me like myself better because she likes me and she doesn't like anyone who doesn't like me. She has no mental illness. She's never been a pain in the arse. She isn't difficult or too emotional like I am. She isn't vengeful like me. She has no mean streak. She can walk away from abuse without becoming abusive. I wish I were like her in those ways. Lord knows I'm working on it.
1: She talks about them having like a classic sibling relationship. They would fight. They would scream. And then as soon as Sinead would fall, then she like would assume a motherly role like instantly and just be there for her.
0: She also says it was so weird for them growing up because they were middle class, but they were constantly dirty. Nobody washed their clothes and they would just walk around and beg. And often they would beg for bus fare so they could just take the bus back and forth all day until they felt their mother might be asleep so they could go home. She has an older brother named Joseph.
1: My brother Joseph and I have a similar relationship as my father and I do in that we only get along when discussing music. Rest of the time, my brother doesn't really like me because I'm a pain in the ass and too emotional. But when we were growing up, he was my hero. I've probably spent a total of an hour with him since I was 18 and our mother died. It's hard for children of abuse to be around each other. Triggers and reminders. Plus, I lost my shit with him maybe once too often. Plus, he lost his shit with me once too often. We are bad-tempered, the O'Connors. It's sad, really.
0: He's funny, my brother Joe. Pants pissingly funny. I miss him very much and I feel shit about myself because I know we are so distant. But he is still my hero and I love him to my soul. My little brother John is two years younger than me. My mother gave him a very hard time. The nights I heard him scream for mercy at her command and couldn't rescue him have vastly contributed to my activism and my anger management problem. I couldn't save him. I couldn't protect him. I couldn't even move a muscle or get myself from my room to his. I've been angry at my mother all my life, but I displaced it. I couldn't admit it was her I was angry at, so I took it out on the world and burned nearly every bridge I ever crossed. We really are a messed up family. We didn't even suit that word family. It should be a comforting word, but it's not. It's a painful, stabbing word. It cuts the hearts into pieces. And all the more because it's too late to go back and do anything differently.
1: She tells a story about trying to score hash and where her dad stood in that story. And essentially, it's just that he is a deeply protective man who cared about them a lot and had no idea how
0: to express that. He chased the weed dealer down the street on a tricycle for miles, (laughs) which is really funny. She says, best day of my life was the day I first left Ireland and any other day I left Ireland was the next best. Okay. Well, our Irish listeners, that's not how we feel about Ireland. We love you guys. And i of note is that Sinead is back in Ireland.
1: <laughs> a full dose of something that will give you a creative boost, help you live in the moment, improve your sleep, improve your anxiety. That sounds pretty intimidating. So what about a microdose? Microdosing helps you achieve that just right feeling where your mind and your body are at peace, like after a workout. Honestly, for me, the feeling is like after a shower, like an outdoor shower on a beach day. That is the exact feeling I'm going for, and that is the feeling that I find with microdose gummies from Lumi Labs. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. As you know, Claire and I have been traveling a ton lately, and in the few days that I have at home, there is so much to get done, and I am an anxious traveler, so having to squash my anxiety while do a giant to-do list, I needed a little something to help me out, and microdose gummies are the perfect little mix. Half a gummy helps me sleep better, feel less anxious constantly. But also feel creative, feel productive, get everything done. They taste so good and they're just exactly what I need, especially for creativity and productivity. I'm very happy to have them, but anxious sleeping, especially when Bug has been so cuddly lately because she doesn't want me to leave and she sleeps directly on me, a little something to help me fall asleep has been so wonderful. Microdose is available nationwide. To learn more about microdosing THC, go to microdose.com and use the code WORM to get free shipping and 30% off your first order. Links can be found in the show description, but again, that's microdose.com and code WORM. So she's making music and she gets a call that they want her to
0: come to London and make demos. After she left the high school, she broke out. And okay, can I say again? I was thinking about Paris. I guess she kept running away. She kept getting in trouble at school. They hated that she was bringing out busking, but she must have been so talented because even one of the teachers helped her sneak out one night to go record in his friend's recording studio. Clearly there was a talent there, but the head of the school, the head nun, hated that about her and would protest her making music. So Sinead would smoke cigarettes right out of her office to protest the protest. I think it's fair
1: for a nun to be like, I don't think the student should be sneaking out to record music. No,
0: 100%. But I was going to say, it's not very different from the Paris story. Yes. Whereas Paris's parents were like, this is the worst thing in the world. We would rather you be abused than continue to sneak out at night. Her dad was just like, look, you want to make music? Okay. I'll pay for your rent, but you need a job to pay for your own bills. And I do think that saved her because it stopped you from just sitting around. You did have to work, but it always made sure she was safe and had a home. Yeah, And so that's what she did. School is not for everyone. And she obviously figured it out to the best of her abilities.
1: Yeah. And at this point, she was already so traumatized. that I'm like, what is she going to become a math teacher?
0: So she had been playing with this band. And once she left school permanently, they just are practicing all day, every day, except for when they're sleeping and when they're working.
1: So at this point, the music industry is looking for new Irish acts. The Boomtown Rats and Thin Lizzy have just broken onto the scene and become big hit. London is scouting Ireland for talent.
0: On the basis of the demos, I was offered a record deal, which I signed on August 5th, 1985. The lawyer Ensign had sent me to, begged me to let him find me a better deal, but I wasn't taking any risks. I was happy enough. I just wanted to get out of Ireland and be financially independent as quickly as possible. I wasn't hanging out and hoping for another opportunity. I signed for seven points, which means you get paid 7% of what your records sell and you pay for pretty much everything to do with the recording and promoting and touring out of that 7%. Brutal. That's a really bad deal.
1: So the lawyer is also like, well, maybe have your dad look over this contract. Like, let's have someone else take a second look at it. He mistook my indignation for a concern that my father should not have to worry about me. In reality, my granny had impressed upon me several times that a woman must never reveal her cash stash to any male relative. Interesting.
0: So she had moved to
1: London. Fatima is her manager and her great friend who eventually she has a major falling out with that she does not detail in this book.
0: However, he's somebody who from the beginning said, never let them change you, always be yourself, and really took care of her those early years. She also at this point was staying with her aunt who had two sons, and her aunt really believed in her mediumship. She said a weird gift she had had her whole life is she would meet somebody and be able to detail exactly what their home bedroom looked like, even if she had never been there. And she said it just felt like she was accidentally intruding on people's thoughts and she didn't like it. So she was constantly going to psychics and mediums and spiritual people to help her shut down that part of herself. I told him I wanted to learn how to shut down the part of me that was drifting inside people without their permission. The thing was, it was happening because they weren't inside themselves.
1: So she settles in in London. I'm lonely, but I'm writing songs for my first album, and songs are a lonely person's occupation. Songs are ghosts. When my album comes out, I'll become a traveling ghost delivery woman. There'll be a lifetime of goodbyes. I can't have a problem with that.
0: She also has an affair with a priest that her aunt had sent her to to talk to about her emotions, and he claimed that his wife was so awful to him and didn't understand him. The only person who understood him was 18-year-old Sinead, and so they had an affair, and she felt so stupid for following it, and it ended when she got into a car accident, and she called him up and was like, can you come help me? I got into a car accident, and he was like, I can't be seen with you, and she never called him again. I'm like, you're a fucking priest. Your job is to help people. Yeah. She says she's walked funny ever since. So the only people she knows in London are her cousins, her aunt, Chris and Nigel from Ensign, and Fatchna, my manager.
1: I hang around Fatchna a lot. He has a whole room full of shelves filled with records. He has more records than anyone I've ever seen. He buys all the records that are on the Jamaican charts from Dub Vendor on Landbroke Grove.
0: She's really into Rastafarians. She becomes really into the reggae scene, and she relates to their spirituality, and she's just like a young girl, and she ends up hanging out with all these older Rastafarian men just to, like, learn about how they view God.
1: She really loves talking to anyone about God.
0: They're really kind to me. They never mess about. They're very protective. They ask me if I ate and give me Jamaican patties if I say no. They never mind that I just hang about beside them, not saying a whole lot. And I think she loves that they call her daughter a lot. She's always looking for a dad or a parent of anybody.
1: And they're the ones who introduced her to the idea that the Pope is the devil. Nobody owns God.
0: I'm still looking at pictures on how to play chords from books. I just throw a capo on my guitar and it changes the key of a few chord sequences I know. I play as few chords as possible and nothing posh.
1: So Nigel and Chris from the record label start sending her on meetings with other songwriters to help her round out her album. And she says, it's my favorite thing when someone else writes music, given I'm so limited. And I think that that is just one of the things that I find so interesting about her is that she has seen so much of the world and she has experienced so much. And she still looks at her life experience and is like, I don't know anything. And all I can do is hope other people can teach me more. She wants to soak in every story from the world
0: around her. So one of the men she meets is named John Reynolds, and she loves him. I thought we would be bonded for life, and they are. They eventually have a child together. So Chris and Nigel are the two record executives that she deals with, and they sit her down and say, we would love for you to be prettier, wear skirts, wear boots, wear jewelry, maybe feminine it up a bit. And she's like, first of all, I'm not going to wear jewelry you a microphone. That's bad. And she tells Fachna and he says, I think you should fucking shave your head. I went to the barber the next day.
1: This is such a funny story. So she goes to the barber. It's this old Greek man. The way she describes it, he's like running across the barbershop to hide from her. He like can't stand
0: next to her because what she's asking for is so preposterous. Like crying, begging him not to do it. He's like, your family, your husband, your dad, your brother, they're going to beat me up. They'll kill me. And she's like, I'll beat you up. This is
1: insane. When he finished, I stood up to face him. One tear rolled down his right cheek. Me, I loved it. I looked like an alien.
0: When I walked through Ensign, I got stunned silence from Nigel. Doreen, with her back to him, gave me a silent double thumbs up with a playful smile. Chris asked me to sit in the car with him later. Why have you done it? Because I want to be me. Can't you be you with hair? I said, it's you who needs hair. You baldy old fecker, not me. Why don't you let me help you find a doctor? (laughs) You don't want to fuck with Sinead. I feel like she's quick with turn of phrase.
1: She talks about the recording
0: of her first album, The Lion and the Cobra, and how she like trained her voice. So she was recording her first album and they got her a producer and a mixer and she did not like the way he worked. And so he would bring her vocals up high enough so she just learned to train her vocals. And her manager kept being like, if you don't like the producer, just bring in somebody else. It's not that big of a deal. And she's like, they've already spent £100,000 on me. I can't ask them. And then finally, Fashioner's like, no, you've spent £100,000. This is your money. You're in debt to them. You might as well do it the way you want. She's like,
1: well, they've also put in the work. They've helped me craft this album so I don't want to start over and like throw their work in the trash too. And then finally, she finds out she's pregnant and she tells her record label and they're like, great, go see our doctor. And the doctor goes. On behalf of the record label, "Let's abort this thing," And she was like, "Oh,
0: fuck them.": I haven't cried so much in years. Nigel can shove his 100,000, and his producer, I'm starting again So I'm at least 100 grand in debt, starting off, and I earn only five grand a year. If this record doesn't make the money back and more, because it's the second time it's been recorded, I will never be financially independent of people with penises. Speaking of which, I'm also nearly as pregnant as a person can be. Baby's rolling around nicely and I'm beside myself with excitement.
1: So she also marries John, the father of this child, at some point, and we don't really get that story, nor do we get
0: their divorce.
1: She says they loved each other, but it was more like brother-sisterly.
0: He also was not thrilled about the baby, but he was there for the birth and fell in love very quickly. Yes.
1: So she has her baby when she's 20 years old, her first child, and it was three weeks before her first album came out.
0: So she takes this little baby with her on tour, I guess.
1: Yeah, she doesn't really say, but I also feel like it's not our business because if she was a boy, I wouldn't be like, well, where was the
0: baby while you were on tour? You're only busy for a couple hours a day. Yeah. On tour. So I think you just have the baby with you in the bus and the rest of the time somebody on the crew can watch him. I couldn't find the words to describe how much I love John and how much he means to me. He is my family and I wouldn't have sung nearly anything well if not for the fact that I was comfortable enough to be with him recording there in my pajamas and slippers, him making me cry laugh with farts submitted in time to backing tracks. I'd be lost without John in my life. I'd be nothing without the companionship and creativity and brotherhood and laughter and emotional support he has given me. He's the very anchor of my life. There just are not words.
1: Apart from John Reynolds, the only person during that time who unequivocally supported my desire to be both a touring musician and a mother was Fauchna, my manager. He was the only one saying I could be a good mother and he'd make sure there was always help. I'd known him for two years and now he'd become my hero.
0: So three months after Jake was born and my album was about to come out, reviews were in the papers and our promo trips were kicking off. She's 20 years old. She's being interviewed everywhere. I don't know even know what town we're in. I don't care what's for lunch. I don't care why I made a record. I don't even know what planet I'm on. Whatever Fachna thinks is a good idea is a good idea. Whatever he loves, I love. What he hates, I try to hate. All I want to do is keep impressing him. I say whatever I imagine will impress him. I become whatever I imagine will impress him. Sometimes I think I'm more like him than me.
1: So she goes on tour with In Excess, and it's raucous. It's tour life. But she loves them. She's like, they treated me like a boy on
0: tour, which is all you can ask for.
1: Yeah, Michael Hutchins stents was like very quietly looking out for her.
0: A woman's place is in the home, not on Highway 66, especially if she is a mother as I am. You're going to be doing your own head in for the rest of your life every time you go to work if you don't keep telling yourself you're a man
1: she talks a lot about road life there's a very good reason god made the word touring rhyme with whoring in fact most of what i can remember about touring especially in my younger days when i was doing huge in the u.s and european tours to support my albums was it was nothing but sex that's all any of us had on our minds we did the gigs it was a pleasant interlude between doing the gigs we were just being sluts as i said we liked them they were nice guys they had girlfriends and as we say in the music business on tour doesn't count
0: so this book is mostly chronological, but in the way that she starts a sentence six years in the future and then backtracks how we got there backwards. Yes. So she's like, the tour I best remember was actually for my second album, I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got. At this stage, I had a new manager, Steve Fargnoli, who had been Prince's manager. And because Nothing Compares to You on the album had been number one, it was suddenly a whole other world for me on tour. And so she has this huge thing now where she's got a big bus and she's got lighting and hair and makeup. Touring was ultimately a very lonely thing. There were a lot of people around me, people I loved even, but no one could see me and I couldn't see myself reflected in anyone anymore. Suddenly there was no one around me who I'd known before I became very famous. I cut myself off from my family. Not their fault, mine.
1: I'd also gotten into the habit of singing with my eyes closed, which really upset my manager. I came to prefer it for a number of reasons, including the fact that if you make eye contact with someone's boyfriend, you got scared his girl was going to beat you up afterwards. There's not a lot of language about the transition between managers. Like she mentions a couple of times the fallout with Fatima and how much she loves Steve. But like there's a story that we don't get.
0: Inside me, while Fatima spoke each word on the phone, you've been nominated for a Grammy. I saw my life roll up as if it were a blanket and vanish. Quick as a flash, like I was a dying person. I've never told anyone. I'm like Stevie Nicks. She keeps her visions to herself.
1: So this is a really interesting little chunk about award shows. And
0: not that we've never seen
1: anything processed this way. I don't think most celebrities that view awards this way get to
0: continue sharing their opinion. Yeah, write a memoir. Or are famous enough for us to read their memoir. So she gets nominated for her first album, Lion and the Cobra, in 1989. And then a couple years later, I Do Not Want What I Have Not Got brought her an inordinate amount of satisfaction on a different level. That's mostly because Nigel, the record guy who told her to abort her baby and grow out her hair, had told her that he didn't want to release the album. His exact words were, it's too personal. It's like reading someone's diaries. It'll end up gathering dust in a warehouse.
1: The man is such an oxy, in moron. How can a song be too personal? Within months, I do not want what I haven't got was number one all over the planet. And Nigel hadn't had to so much as lift a phone to make millions for himself. I'm pleased for him because an idiot can never get laid if he isn't stinking rich.
0: So then she goes into hating the music industry, hating Los Angeles, and she really related to rap at the time because rap in the 90s was looked down on by the industry until, of course, they co-opted it and made money off of it. And she was like, I was making this music and all they wanted to do was make money off me and they did not understand me at all. The people who run the music industry aren't punk at all. They're a bunch of frightened people that frightened of the wrong thing, namely music. That is so
1: simple and well put.
0: When showbiz execs realize they can't kill rap, they will hijack it. They'll make millionaires of imposter rappers who say things like, you can't be like me. I actually attended the
1: Grammys for the 1989 show and I'd been nominated for Best Female Rock Vocal. I refused to attend all the award shows I was personally offered for my second album because I knew after how I'd spent the year being treated by the industry and media, I wasn't getting awards because of anything I stood for. Rather, I was getting awards because I'd shifted a lot of units, sold a lot of records. Commercial success
0: outranked artistic merit. I made a lot of money for a lot of men who couldn't actually have cared less what the songs were about. And in fact, would prefer I told no one. I make plain as I'm refusing awards and award shows what I'm doing. So in order to draw attention to the issue of child abuse and that I'm a punk, not a pop star and that awards make some people feel more than and some people feel less than and that music shouldn't be such a competition. She is treated like shit because she does not want to win an award.
1: So she is constantly coming back to this Idea that she is a punk, not a pop star, and the world insists on treating her like a pop star. And one of the things that I really love about her and this book is that we hear a lot of people say, like, I'm not who the industry makes me out to be. I'm this, even though they want me to be this. I will not be shoved in the box that they want to shove me in. But then they do go in the box because money is very appealing, and accolades are very appealing, and awards are very appealing. And she stands very firm in saying, This is who I want to be, and I will force you to look at me this way. I don't care about what kind of money. I don't care about what kind of awards. I don't care about the glitz and the glamour. I want to be who I am. I mean, I don't have the strength to do that.
0: I don't even have that much of a desire. If I could fix things (laughs) or be super successful, I'd be like, "Uh huh?
1: If someone right now was like, dye your hair blonde and we'll give you a talk show, I'd be like, all right, have them start mixing the bleach right now. I'm on my fucking way. (laughs) Warmer days are on the way. And as days get longer and daytimes get busier, a good night's sleep has never been more important. Wake up feeling rested and refreshed with the softest, most luxurious sheets from Bolin Branch. Bolin Branch is the bedding expert, making the highest quality sheets with incredible craftsmanship. Each sheet set is made with unmatched softness with 100% traceable organic cotton that gets softer with every single wash. I have the signature hem sheets from Bolin Branch in spruce, and I feel like they spruce up every single aspect of my room. Having that green, gorgeous pop of color bug looks beautiful on them. My bed has never looked more inviting. I am so happy to have upgraded my bed with just the softest sheets I've ever felt, especially in an apartment that you rent with just a signature white color on the walls. Having a pop of color on your bed in such soft and luxurious sheets, it is everything your room needs and more. Bolin and Branch uses the highest quality, 100% organic cotton threads on earth. Each sheet set is slow-made for a superior softness and a better night's sleep. They feel buttery soft to the touch. They're so breathable. They're perfect for cooler and warmer weather. They're so luxurious, they are loved by four U.S. presidents. I'm not sure which four, but that's a lot of presidents. Sleep better at night with and Branch Sheets. Shop their spring sale now to get 20% off your order. Use promo code CMBC at bowlinbranch.com. That's Branch. B-O-L-L-A-N-D branch.com promo code CNBC. Exclusions apply. See the site for details.
0: She talks about one of the Ireland DJs who absolutely came against her, who not too many years later, when he's convicted and jailed for repeated acts of pedophilia, his rage man makes sense. And she says in America, I'm bullied very badly by certain men on the night. I skipped the Grammys. In fact, I'm even spiked at a watching party in Eddie Murphy's house, which scares the shit out of me. So she leaves L.A., I don't want anything to do with the trappings of so-called success anymore. This book is interesting because it doubles down on a lot of men that we went, are they the worst? And then in this book, I'm like, okay, yeah, they're the worst. And man number one is Eddie Murphy. Yes. Evil, evil man. Man number two is Prince. She writes
1: a scathing story about Prince. He comes up a lot in this book. So her new manager after Fachna was formerly Prince's manager. Nothing Compares to You was originally written by Prince. I mean, there's a lot of echoings of Prince in this book. And then you get to this story, the time she met Prince. And you're like, wait, what the fuck is up with Prince?
0: So he calls her up and he goes, is this Shinehead O'Connor? And I say, no, this is Sinead O'Connor, just to wind him up. Then I ask him who he is. He says he's Prince. He wants to meet me later. So he sends a car. The car comes. She's 23. She's so excited. She imagines they'll fall in love. Her friends can't believe it. She shows up at his house. And she's like, it's weird to begin with because the driver wouldn't speak to me at all. And normally drivers love to chat. So she knocks on the door, turns around, limo's gone. She's in the middle of nowhere, gate closed, no idea what to do. And a man answers the door and he's like shivering and hunched over and nervous. She says he looks like somebody named Igor. She gets in there and she's waiting to figure out what to do. And she's sitting in the kitchen, looking through the cupboards because she's kind of like, well, wouldn't you want to know what Prince keeps under his sink in his kitchen and what he uses to clean his house? When Adam nowhere, Prince comes out. There's a swoosh sound and a sweet smell from somewhere behind me. I turn around. Prince is in the doorway. Old fluffy cuffs. <laughs>
1: He commences stalking up and down the side of his breakfast bar, arms crossed, one hand rubbing his chin between his thumb and forefinger as if he has a beard, looking at me up and down like, A, I'm a piece of dog shit at the end of his shoe, and B, like he's figuring out where upon my little body to punch me for the fullest effect.
0: I don't like this, and I don't appreciate it, and I don't appreciate the assumption I'm easy prey. Then he shouts at me, I don't like the language you're using in print interviews. I say, you mean English? Oh, I'm sorry about that. The Irish was beaten out of us. No, he says, I don't like you swearing. I don't work
1: for you, I tell him. And if you don't like it, you can fuck yourself. This really pisses him
0: off. He leaves the kitchen and he calls for someone named Dwayne. So they go into this dining area and he asks Dwayne for soup. He's really mean to Dwayne. And is like, I'm not going to be part of belittling a servant. I will not acknowledge this. He's like, do you want soup, Sinead? And she's like, I won't eat the soup because I won't partake in belittling Dwayne. Dwayne is shaking like a child. He's so nervous. She finds out that Dwayne is his brother and she unloads. He keeps being like, give Sinead some soups. Sinead's like, I won't eat the soup. And it's just a battle of the wills. Poor Igor is stuck in the middle, or Dwayne, I guess his name is. And she says, Igor knew what was going on. I wasn't going to be part of humiliating him. I wouldn't have eaten the soup if my life depended on it. He finally placed the bowl back on the tray and stood holding the lot, not knowing what to do, looking like he was going to cry. I don't know that you were helping Dwayne by refusing the soup. So then out of nowhere, Prince is like, I'm going upstairs and comes back down with two pillows and says, why don't we have a pillow fight? All smiles and nice. I think, okay, it wouldn't be every day they get to have a pillow fight with Prince. What the hell is trying to make it a fun evening after the shitty start? Only on the first thump I get, I realize he's got something in the pillow stuffed down to the end designed to hurt. He ain't playing at all.
1: After a while, he informs me that I may open the front door and tell his driver to take me home. I open the door so there's some decent light and I say, I do not wish to wake the driver. I would prefer to call a cab and a temper tantrum ensues
0: what is happening between i, I just her and also Prince? think that it needs to be reiterated so he has been beating her with a like, pillow with a rock in it yes and so she finally gets away and is like i want to leave and he says his driver will drive her home and they have a battle of the wills where she explains to him that she doesn't feel safe and would rather be in control of her own leaving he orders Dwayne to back off and tells the driver to go to bed they both do as they're told himself literally drags me toward the front door and orders me to stand on the step while he finds his car keys
1: Finally, he lifts his face up to mine as close as six inches and stares into my eyes for 10 seconds. From the light through the open door, I see his eyes clearly. His irises dissolve in front of me, so his eyes go pure white. They don't go up. They don't go down. They don't go left. They don't go right. They dissolve. I see it as clear as day. I get a cold beer in my stomach. I run out the door and shake the driver awake. So then he says he'll drive her home, and she's like, no, I'm getting in a car with this motherfucker.
0: I think I've gone beyond the boundaries of the property. There are some palm trees. I hide myself behind one and turn my head to see where he is. He's chasing her, screaming, where the fuck have you gone? He's screaming at her. She ends up being able to make it off the property. And it's like dawn. She's been there all night because he drives down the driveway. So she's able to see like what the road is. She sees the highway far away. She's able to get to the highway. And she's walking down the highway at dawn trying to get home. And who pulls up to her? Next thing it fucking is him. He drives alongside me, rolls down the passenger window and orders me to get in. I tell him he can suck my dick. He screeches the car to a halt, gets out, starts chasing around the car. They're chasing and chasing. And then she remembers the thing her dad said, which is that if you're ever being chased by a man around a car, you're lucky that that situation was sure to come up. <laughs> like just knock on somebody's door, ring somebody's bell, get them to come help you. So she runs up a driveway. Knocks on the door, rings the bell. Prince goes back into the car and drives off.
1: Finally, she gets a hold of her friend, Sierra. She finds a phone booth and she calls her friend who comes to pick her up. She's 40 minutes away. After I tell Steve Faragnoli, her manager, he goes berserk. He wants to go around and shoot fluffy cuffs. They say I've been the victim of an attack that was actually meant to terrorize Steve. Apparently there's some legal proceedings going on between him and Prince. I don't know anything about it. I don't care either, but I never want to see the devil again. But I think of Dwayne fondly
0: quite often. What? I don't know, man. So I was thinking, who else had a bad Prince story? And then I realized we haven't actually read a bad Prince story, but Tommy Lee was briefly either dating or married to Mady Garcia, who I think started dating Prince when she was like 14 or 15. Yeah. And he was like, she was fucked up by Prince. And I was like, damn, if Tommy Lee thinks you're fucked up by a guy.
1: It's just very interesting because I think Prince still holds such a a ethereal
0: place in music. I think he's seen as like beloved and like in a lot of people's stories, he invites you to a party one time and you just feel so honored to be near him. In Gabrielle Union's book, I think she got invited. But I think also Mariah Carey, I think a bunch of people, if you get to go to one of his parties, that becomes the story in your memoir. You're like, and one time I got to go to a Prince story. So then there's all these stories out there about people barely knowing him being like, and isn't he amazing? He gave me a glass of milk once. But then people who have stories of being alone with him are like horrible. Down on St. Mark's Place in Avenue A, there's a tiny Irish bar run by a giant Irish man. And she hates drinking. One of the things I think is good about her is that she doesn't drink because she's kind of allergic to alcohol, but she does smoke a lot of weed. But she would go and hang out at this Irish bar. And across the street, there was a juice bar run by Rastafarians. And she ends up hanging out with them and smoking weed with them every night.
1: They feed her, I've never been an eater, my blood is too anxious, the elders don't eat meat, but they eat fried fish and sweet potatoes and rice and peas, and they like will spoon feed her, they treat her like a little stray cat.
0: I thought they didn't like me was why they were silent, but it ain't anything other than they are watchers, they're watching out for God everywhere, they're like God's security detail, that's how they see themselves, and that is exactly how they are. So she starts spending all of her free time with these guys, just learning from them. And they're all older Rasta men. One of them is named Terry, and he is very wise. She loves him
1: a lot. His face looks sorrowful as he takes my hands at his. He has something to tell me, and he wants me to try and forgive him.
0: So these guys who are teaching her all about peace and hating the Pope and like looking for light and religion everywhere. It turns out that actually they don't run a juice shop. They've been running guns and using children. He tells me that he's going to get killed soon. He said someone tried to kill him before. He said he's been using kids as mules. They have guns and drugs in their school bags, not books. He's moved in on someone's territory and it's only a matter of time. I'm horrified by what he's been doing and that he's going to be murdered. There is so much pacing the juice bar over the course of that week.
1: And she had been taking a lot of spiritual guidance from these people that now she finds out have
0: been using children as drug mules and her big thing is child abuse she hates it when children are abused and for them to be using children i think is like the ultimate betrayal to her so she
1: feels extremely aimless now in her spiritual direction that weekend she's gonna be doing snl so now she backs up to a photo that her mother had of the pope that she's been carrying around for years it's a
0: photo of pope john paul ii from when he visited ireland in 1979 and he kissed the ground he says young people of ireland i love you what a load of claptrap. Nobody loved us, not even God. Sure, even our mothers and fathers couldn't stand us. My intention had always been to destroy my mother's photo of the Pope. It represented lies and liars and abuse. The type of people who kept these things were devils like my mother. I never knew when or how or where I would destroy it, but destroyed I would when the right moment came. And with that in mind, I carefully brought it everywhere I lived from that day forward because nobody ever gave a shit about the children of Ireland.
1: So her plan is to sing one of her songs on SNL and then to sing War by Bob Marley acapella. She decides this is the night. This is the perfect opportunity to rip up my mother's
0: photo of the Pope. It also so happens that I've been pissed off for a few weeks because I've also been reading brief articles buried in the back of the Irish newspapers about children who have been ravaged by priests, but whose stories are not believed by the police or bishops their parents report it to. So I've been thinking even more of destroying my mother's photo of JP too.
1: So she does the check, the dress rehearsal. She holds up a photo of a child because she's like, I'm singing Bob Marley's War. Everyone knows that I hate child abuse. I'll say that I'm singing for this child. And then once they practice the camera cues later, I've got my surprise in store.
0: She sings her first song, which is success has made a failure of our home. And ironically, afterwards, everybody wants to talk to her. Producers, managers, makeup artists, fellow guests. I'm the flavor of the month. Everyone wants to talk to me to tell me how good of a girl I am. That whole song is about how she feels like the success has ruined her life. And so she sings it. Of course, people are like, we love how successful you are.
1: And then it's time for the second song. She sings war. I hold up JP2's photo and rip it into pieces. I yell, fight the real enemy. I'm talking to those who are going to kill Terry and I blow out the candle. Total stunned silence in the audience. And when I walk backstage, literally not a human being is in sight. All doors have closed. Everyone has vanished, including my own manager who locks himself in his room for three days and unplugs his phone. Everyone wants a pop star, see, but I am a protest
0: singer. I just had to get stuff off my chest. I had no desire for fame. In fact, that's why I chose the first song. Success was making a failure of my life because everyone was already calling me crazy for not acting like a pop star, for not worshiping fame. And I understand I've torn up the dreams of those around me, but those aren't my dreams. No one ever asked me what my dreams were. They just got mad at me for not being who they wanted me to be. My own dream was to only keep the contract I made with God before I ever made one with the music business. And that's a better fight than murder. I got to get to the other side of life.
1: So she gets back to her hotel, the matter is being discussed on the news, and we learn I am banned from NBC for life. This hurts me a lot less than rapes hurt those Irish children, and a lot less than
0: Terry dying, which happens the following Monday anyway. A lot of people say or think that tearing up the Pope's photo derailed my career. That's not how I feel about it. I feel that having a number one record derailed my career, and my tearing the photo put me back on the right track. I had to make my living performing live again, and that's what I was born for. I wasn't born to be a pop star. You have to be a good girl from that. Not too troubled. So then she talks about, she's like, listen, from then on, I just worked and became an incredible live performer. I was a mother of four children and I paid the bills by myself and I got to do my art and I got to be who I was. What's more successful than that? I can't argue there. So no, it wasn't derailed. It was rerailed. And I've been extremely successful as a single mother providing for her children. So then she talks about
1: her experience with drugs, the ones she likes, the ones she doesn't like. I mean, she has an addiction to weed. And then besides that, the only drug she loves is speed, which she won't do because... She's scared she'll get addicted.
0: (laughs) It's weed I wasn't sober on. On weed I was always working and I loved it because I could stay in my own world when the world outside didn't make any sense. Most musicians love weed because it turns up the music inside you and helps you cope with all the hanging around doing nothing. It being the case that weed makes doing nothing interesting. Yes, weed I've liked too much. Then she has a chapter called Homeless Man at Easter where she talks about being out with all these like fancy people at dinner and a homeless man came in for asking for money, gets chased away and then he comes back and asks for a hug and she thinks that's the most beautiful thing in the world. She thinks he's a genius. And that's the chapter where I was like, okay,
1: she overuses the word genius a bit. Not that the homeless man can't be a genius, but that the idea of a hug is genius.
0: Yeah, I do feel that, you know, I guess better to see beauty everywhere and be moved constantly than to never be moved at all. But I do have a feeling she's kind of got that like hippy-dippy white woman thing. She's a bit of a nutcase. She mentions meeting a
1: handful of angels who are all people that like come to her and let her cry with them and
0: things like that. She's somebody who really loves to be like, a woman who needed help on the road gave me far more than I ever gave her, even though I literally gave her like the CPR that saved her life and then I never saw her again. But like she's very into like looking for a ton of meaning in these small moments, which is probably, may we all...
1: She went and hugged that homeless man. I wish I wasn't a cynical bitch. So this chapter, I don't really know what to make of it. She's performing in honor of Bob Dylan at Madison Square Garden. Everyone is still really mad at her because of the SNL thing. It's she, in the wake of the SNL thing. She goes out on stage. Half the audience is screaming booing. The other half of the audience is cheering. It makes this horrible loud noise. And instead of singing the song that she was supposed to sing, she just sings the Bob Marley song War that she had performed recently
0: on SNL. She screams it so hard. It takes all the energy out of her body. Chris Kristofferson walks up to him. I'm thinking, I don't need a man to rescue me. Thanks. It's so embarrassing. Don't let the bastards get you down, he says, into my mic. And we go off stage and I almost barf on him as he gives me a hug. Afterward, I feel like Bob Dylan is the one who should have come out and told his audience to let me sing. And I'm pissed that he didn't.
1: So I glare at him as if he's my big brother who just told my parents I skipped school. He stares back at me baffled.
0: I agree with her. The day after Madison Square Garden, I go visit Dylan's manager in his office. I tell him about what's been happening in the church in Ireland, that kids have been raped and the church is covering it up. I ask if he and Dylan will help expose it. He thinks I'm crazy, offers no help. Neither he nor Dylan are going to speak up for me. I'm on my own. I wonder if they still think I'm crazy now.
1: So this is the chapter that made me be like our society. Anyone who doesn't fall inside the norms, anyone will tell them they're crazy. Anything that's not, they're falling into place and doing our regular school and our regular programming and following our regular jobs is mentally ill. And I'm like, okay, she is mentally ill.
0: She is mentally ill, but what it made me think is anybody who, when Spotlight came out, was like, oh my God, the, the church is, what you, Sinead O'Connor told you. Yeah. Like the idea that anything has ever been a secret is such bullshit because we all knew always. We all knew anybody always. Anybody that's ever been exposed, like in the Harvey Weinstein thing, when people were like, I had no idea. I knew. Uh, everyone. Knew. Everybody has always known everything. It's just we don't really care. And then she talks about being used to being hated, that it didn't really bother her. The, one of her first big controversies had happened during her first tour. And so the story that was told about her was that she absolutely refused to allow the American anthem to be played before her show. And she said, if they play it, I'll storm off the stage and I refuse to play. And this got a lot of backlash for how much she hated America. And she was like, first of all, I love America. And second of all, that did not happen. Like, what happened is they came up to me and they said, hey, would you mind if we played the American national anthem before your show? And she's like, they asked it like it was a question. Like I could say no if I wanted. And I said, eh, I prefer not to. And then they left. And she's like, first of all, I would never say I don't want to play because she's like my insurance wouldn't cover that. I'm literally I can't afford to not play the show I said I was going to play. And second of all, she's like, I never hunted them down and demanded they not play it. They just made it seem like I had a choice. So I made my choice. And then she said the backlash was huge. Everybody hated her. And the craziest person to come out of it was MC Hammer, cashing in on the whole thing, publicly sends me a check for a first-class ticket back to Ireland.
1: I'm feeling flattered that the establishment considers me enough of a threat that it needs to try and discredit me, along with all the other bands and artists who've been under attack in this censorship of music that is America since Straight out of Compton. It obviously affects her. Like She obviously doesn't like being hated, but the way she can also just spin it around and be like, So you know when you're worried about your own bullshit.
0: She has such a sense of self that does not come from the establishment giving her credit. She's a true punk. Yes. She's an honest-to-God punk. Okay. So the next 50 pages are musical notes, and they're just her going through her entire discography, giving a sentence or two about each song. We are not going to read that because I don't know who's listening that can name more than max two Sinead O'Connor songs. But I do want to say this. She talks about, my collection of albums represents my healing journey. When I was younger, I wrote from a place of pain because I needed to get things off my chest. Once I came to theology album, which is all scripture, I worked from a place of healing. And the first album I wrote totally apart from that is I'm Not Bossy, I'm the Boss. And it is from that platform I continue to write. After all, there is no point in setting out on a healing journey if you're not going to find yourself healed.
1: She does also have some really interesting notes. I think if you're very interested in the music of Sinead O'Connor or music in general, and especially her writing process, which I do think is especially interesting. She has a chapter about learning to sing in her own voice yes. as opposed to an American accent. I think that it's really interesting the way she talks about how she originally sang in an American accent and then she like learned how to sing in her Irish accent so not to damage her vocal cords.
0: But then also she could hit notes she couldn't hit previously. That she became a better singer because of it. Yes. She also has this that I liked Fire on Babylon is a song about my mother. I won't go into too much detail but it had to do with something I found out she'd done to one of my brothers that just made me really angry. Truth to tell, it's very hard for me to get angry about my mother. It's the way I've survived. I've convinced myself that she didn't know what she was doing. People will do that, but of course, I've misplaced that anger and it might be more mature for me to accept it. You can tell from the video how furious I was with her as I present the poor mother figure with a birthday cake that just blows up in her face. I mean, I actually, as somebody who gets very bored by the nuts and bolts of music creation often, I found this very interesting to read. She's very proud of most of the music she's made at one point, she was going to a therapist six days a week. Yeah. She says she went mostly because she was lonely and she just wanted somebody to talk to. Probably I was lonely because I was a difficult personality. I didn't realize that at the time. I was young. Also because of my job, I guess. She's an absolute stan of Muhammad Ali. She also has four children. So she has Jake with that first guy. She has Roizen with this man who was a music reviewer who wrote a nice review of her music. They decide to have a baby and just like co-parent and never get together. Her name's Roizen. She has another son. The night she met Muhammad Ali, she goes and fucks this guy that she was seeing who was married and gets pregnant and keeps the baby. And then the fourth baby she has with a man that she dated for quite some time but never married. Yes.
1: So her baby, Roizen, she and this guy, I think John Waters was his name. They're just kind of hooking up and they agree to have a baby together. But she mentions earlier in the book, she became entangled in a hideous and depressing custody battle over her and attempted suicide on my 33rd birthday. That is never really looked into again. And later when she's talking about the forefathers of her four children.
0: Two of them she's good friends with and two of them they don't speak at all. Yes. I guess the child is an adult so it doesn't matter. There's not active hatred but there's no contact. Yeah. Lou Reed is another one that she stands. She got to think back of Dolly Parton and then yes, Lou Reed had her back. And she says for decades after the SNL thing she would walk into a room and everybody would ignore her that she was forever a pariah. And this was decades later and she was still in there and she did something in London where they have a couple of bands play it all together and each does a few songs and then moves along. And when she got there, not one person would speak to her. And when Lou Reed came in, he made a point of giving her a hug and being warm to her. And everyone had to treat her with respect afterwards. And she's like, he did that for me.
1: Anthony Kiedis, she brings up, according to his memoir, they had a short-lived
0: relationship. And she's like, what the fuck was that about? That's not true. In his memoir, Scar Tissue, he describes this kissing. It never happened. He says we had some type of romantic relationship, only in his mind. We hung around together, and he's a very nice gentleman. I even remember him helping me bring my son to the hospital once, but I got annoyed when he wanted to get further. He confused me completely with some other bull chick. That never happened.
1: So then she goes further into her relationship with her children. It's difficult to be a very good mother when you're a touring musician. I was affectionate and loving, and I was away a lot. Even when I was home, I was rather like an automaton, tired and worn out and very frightened that I might be like my own mother.
0: She says she always had a nanny around, not because she didn't love her children, but because she was scared to be with her children because she didn't know how to be a good mother and wanted to make sure they always felt love. Also, two of her older children became professional chefs. She goes, I just think it's hilarious that so far two of my kids have become great cooks. Since I have mild anorexia, I consider starving. But I would still like some of my daughter's pastries to arrive in a box. So I hope after she reads this book, one will. And she says it before throughout the other book. She's like, you know, I never ate because I was so stressed and I didn't like food. And I've like, well, I'm mildly anorexic. And I guess that's just like a thing she'll be forever.
1: I mean, there is like clinically anorexic. And then there's considering yourself to be dealing with the mental struggles of anorexia. And I don't think she considers herself dealing with the mental struggles of anorexia. I think she's like, no, I'm literally malnourished.
0: Yeah. I think she's a very fraught relationship with her food because her mother often starved her. And I think there's probably like a religious aspect. You know what I mean? I think she's just somebody who doesn't like to eat as like a self-punishment.
1: And then she mentions she believes all of her children have these guardian angels, but with Roizen, she sees the angel. She says one day she woke up and she saw this guardian angel cradling her daughter's head. And then she's just seen mystical things happen around her daughter ever since. Like one time there was a knife on the countertop and Roizen was running right at it and she saw the knife lift up and her daughter didn't get hurt. She like makes a little joke about having these four kids by four different men. I mean, she says it's something that she didn't plan, but it's her life and she wouldn't have it any other way. I did have quite a funny time on tour a number of years ago when I had to explain to a German customs man calling from the Munich airport why I have four children with four different surnames. The man was worried I was child trafficking. I was on the phone with him in my hotel, and my children were being brought to visit me by their male nanny, who also had a different surname. It took about 20 minutes to explain to the customs agent what the story was, and nothing made sense to him until I said, look, I was a little bit of a slut. And he said, oh, okay. And that was that.
0: And so one thing I want to say about Sinead O'Connor in this book is, as we said, It might have been a bit harder to understand if she had not given us that scaffolding at the beginning that really acts as a guide and a map through the rest of the book so you can understand where you're at. I'm like reading this and being like, wow, things really fell apart after SNL. She barely tells us anything but the story of those songs she wrote. And then she hits us with this. The reason I haven't written much about what happened between 1992 and 2015 is that in August 2015, after I'd written the first part of this book, I had an open surgery radical hysterectomy in Ireland followed by a total breakdown. I had gone as far as Saturday Night Live story, but I did not write anything else for the four years it took me to recover from the breakdown. And by the time I recovered, I was unable to remember anything much that took place before it. So what happened is she got this hysterectomy. And I guess in Ireland, they do not explain that when you have a hysterectomy, you can go into a surgical menopause. And that fucks with your hormones and can absolutely make you feel crazy and especially exacerbate any mental illness you might already have. It's a complete hormonal imbalance. And because she didn't understand this and it had not been told to her, she didn't know what was going on with her and the people in her life did not know what was going on with her. So she was just like acting crazy and nobody wanted to deal with her anymore. Okay, so she had chronic endometriosis,
1: which I'm sure must have affected her throughout her entire life, but she doesn't mention it until now. And she says that when she went to go have this hysterectomy, they also just took her ovaries, too, because the doctor thought might as well.
0: She also says, maybe it's good to forget stuff. There was so much pain after all involved with being a pariah for decades after SNL cut. I can't believe how long we punished her for what? Thinking raping children is bad. So now she can't be part of society. For not being obsessed with the Pope. Okay. Christians are Disney adults. So basically she goes to America and she stays with somebody she knows. And she kind of keeps getting bopped around between families who will take her in in the U.S. and find her therapy. They're giving her hormone replacements and she's getting talk therapy. And at one point, she's moved to New Jersey with a manager that she breaks up with, but she's going to all these hospitals all the time and she's doing a ton of inpatient care.
1: She's checked into a few different mental hospitals and a few different medical hospitals. She's just constantly in and out of care. And she one day posts a plea to Facebook
0: saying, somebody please help me. She has a kidney stone attack and she's alone and she's desperate and she's a little bit unstable. So she posts a plea to Facebook.
1: And that evil conniving little motherfucker, Dr. Phil, of course, sees it because everyone's like, what is up with Sinead O'Connor? We haven't seen her in a while. And now she's acting crazy on Facebook. So Dr. Phil reaches out and is like, I can definitely help you. Her doctors are like, don't go to where he's sending you. But she's so desperate for a solution that she's like, why would Dr. Phil not be able to save me? She trusts him so much. And so she goes to this hospital.
0: The other thing is Dr. Phil has lied to her and basically said that thousands of your own fans who love and care about you have reached out to me pleading to help you because you're so loved. And he lies to Jimmy Fallon. He says Sinead reached out to
1: me, which wasn't true. He reached out to her.
0: And so he says, we will send you to this inpatient facility that'll fix you if you agree to do the TV show. So she agrees to do it partly because she wasn't allowed to have cigarettes in the U.S. medical system. And she's like, so I can smoke weed and smoke cigarettes for eight straight hours until you drive me to the South. Great. I'll do it. And they have to do the TV show. She gets there and she's like, oh, the way that he exploited me. She did not know that this inpatient system, it was nine hours of trauma therapy and like intense treatment every single day. And all of her doctors were like, you are not in a place where you can do trauma therapy right now. You are so fragile as it is. You cannot be like delving into your darkest wounds. You have to get help first. You're suicidal. And they did not consult any of her previous medical paperwork. They did not call for any
1: of the notes from her years of therapy before that, from the hospitals she had been in and out of for the last decade. They just went straight into their Dr. Phil trademarked
0: solution. He makes me tell him my story on camera. I trust him because I'm vulnerable and I want to live, so I go ahead and let it all hang out. I cry like a baby. He even makes me speak to my mother, the things little Sinead might want to say, which I do because I think he's helping me. Oh, and also because I'm given the vibe that before shooting, that my being on the show while I'm so fragile is brave and will help others. He goes on and on about some big producers he knows, swears this guy's going to call me and we're going to make records. When we're filming a final walk around the property, he tells me that he was recently at a meeting attended by Steve Bannon and that the Trump people had actually discussed at the meeting the idea of MAGA being MAWA, make America white again. He acted all disgusted when telling me, but I figured if he was really that disgusted, he'd be telling the world. That would be spiritual honesty, to risk losing all you have to save the vulnerable, to risk being called crazy and being a pariah. No, he didn't have the balls. Off he flew in his chopper and I never saw him again. So she finally breaks out because it's so horrific there and she can't take it anymore. They can't hold her in because she's an adult woman, but unfortunately she has like a key and brings back the key And in the half hour when she's bringing something back, they convince her to go to another inpatient therapy in California.
1: Things go from bad to worse each time I make a formal complaint about the facility's crew or about the other suicidal girl that Dr. Phil sent them after the show, sobbing to me about not getting the care she felt she needed, although she was having urges.
0: So it's a bad place. And finally, after a few years, she does get out. And then she just switches to, in Islam, we believe that heaven is always night. And she talks about how naked she feels without her hijab, which she has worn since October, 2018.
1: She said she reverted to Islam because it's always felt like home. And then she talks about her life
0: now. She just says, back in Ireland, she did a performance of Nothing Compares to You on some late show that she said went well. People are celebrating her. She goes, all I have to do is not fuck it up. So far, so good. I've only had one little slip where I threatened the Irish state on Twitter. Then I told an obvious lie and said my Twitter account had been hacked and the tweet wasn't mine. Total lie. Crazy bitch. But apart from that, I've done good.
1: She writes a little letter to her dad saying it's not your fault that I'm mentally ill,
0: so I hope you don't think that. She talks about being agoraphobic. I haven't actually told more than two of my friends about this problem, so people get mad at me because I make plans to go somewhere and always cancel. I mean to go when I make the plan. I want to go, but when it comes time to go, I panic and find a white lie for why I can't. I don't know why I lie. I guess I just don't want people thinking I'm nuts.
1: And then she talks about wanting to become a nurse. It's now the beginning of lockdown. She's always wanted to go to this one-year program where she would learn healthcare And she wished she'd gone before because she'd be able to help on the front lines of COVID. But she plans to go next year and then go on tour. And I haven't checked to see if she did.
0: And that's the book. I think it was definitely unhinged but lovable. I mean, she tries so hard and she feels so bad. That letter in her dad, she's like, it's not your fault the way I ended up. It has nothing to do with my upbringing. It was my genetic predisposition and then getting hit in the head by that train. And I'm like, "Uh, I would bet your mom beating the shit out of you had something to do with it, honestly. She's like, it's not my mom's fault either. I'm like, I think it's a little her fault for locking you in a closet and making you pee in your own bedroom and have no food growing up. It didn't do nothing and it didn't do something good. Anyway, I really found this book to be beautiful. I mean, I think she wrote it so beautifully. It was so hopeful. Yeah,
1: I think this was one that is honestly kind of hard to do for this podcast because I think a lot of it is in the wording and like the way it's presented and like the book as a whole.
0: Yeah, I think it's worth a read. I also do think it's another example of a woman who does deserve a review of how we treated her as a society and like compared to Paris Hilton. Like, do you know what I mean? And I think it it speaks to my feeling about these memoirs is right now we're really in the mood to look back at the women we've wronged historically and act like we'll never do it again. Of course, we're still doing it again. But not all of them deserve the same apology. She deserves an apology. The way that everybody in the world turned their back on her because she wanted to stand up against child abuse and still, who's standing up against child abuse? I mean, I'm really impressed by her integrity. May we all have convictions and courage to follow them the way Sinead did. But may we all have an easier time. <laughs> I, wish to, like, I don't want us to all be Sinead, but, you know, I'm happy she's on the other side of it and able to write a book, and I hope she finds peace. Yeah, I mean, I guess I just hope she's on the other side of it. I mean, I'm sure she'll never be, but I hope things are easier as she gets older. Yeah. And I hope she always has someone she loves nearby.
1: Thank you, guys. Can't wait to see you in Ireland. Yeah, A place that we are happy when we enter. And the second happiest we are is the next time we enter. Love you. And thank you so much to our five-star reviewers. Simran Yoga, I appreciate you. Namaste. Nat Attack, I would love to attack you with gratitude. Thank you, Glassy Baby. You are clear and bright and beautiful. Thank you, Jilly Jill 22 I appreciate you times 22, Jills. Thank you, Andrew, who exposed Erica Jane. Get it, Andrew. Nice work. Thank you, Haley's 861. I would like to send 861 cheers back at ya. Thank you, yes, my real name is Patience. That, my friend, is a virtue. Thank you, Alicia M. V., If I could petition to replace the DMV with an Alicia MV, you bet your ass I would. Thank you, Lenny Leonard. Thank you for this sweet home review. Thank you, keeping it real. If I'm keeping it real, I would say I adore you to the ends of the earth. Thank you, who's in the house. You are in the beautiful review house, and I appreciate you for it. Thank you, Say Desi. If I could say one thing, it would be thank you. And that is all for this week. I appreciate you guys so much. Have a beautiful rest of your week.